Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Radio Westeros, episode 46, The Wolfmaid. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and today I'm bringing you an episode all about Lyanna Stark. Nearly five years ago, our fifth episode was all about R plus L equals J, where we presented the evidence that supports the well-trodden theory that Jon Snow is the son of Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen. I spent a lot of my early years in the fandom arguing in support of this theory, and it's a subject near and dear to my heart. Because we believe completely in the trove of evidence that George has laid out in his books and has been mined so carefully and lovingly by fans over the years, for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to assume that R plus L equals J is true. But I'm also going to encourage you to give the RLJ episode a listen if you missed it, or a re-listen if you want a refresher. While today's episode will certainly stand alone, the earlier episode does bring a deeper dive into the topic. We view these two as companion pieces and hope that you'll find that we've brought a fresh perspective here in this episode. And so this episode will start with a look at Lyanna's family history and early life, which will be followed by a lengthy analysis of the tourney at Harrenhal. From Harrenhal, we'll journey to the crossroads and onwards to the mountains of Dorne. We'll end, as Lyanna herself so tragically did, at the crypts of Winterfell. And along the way, we'll consider politics, romance, marriage, tragedy, and answers to questions long sought. Before we start, I want to mention that in this episode, I'm supported once again by the fantastic vocal talents of Scad from Davos Fingers, Mikhail from Vassals of Kingsgrave and Hypable, and Robert from In Deep Geek, and many thanks to them. Check out their projects for more great A Song of Ice and Fire content. We will have links in the description. We also want to thank Lauren, also known as Shakes of Thrones on Twitter, for contributing a song for this episode. Keep your ears peeled around a third of the way in. We promise you won't be disappointed. We also want to thank all of you for the many kind messages we've received over the past months during Yoke Boy's hiatus. We're making progress and hope that he'll be with us again soon. And speaking of thanks, 
Now's the time that we thank our generous patrons, including our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Kelly, Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Wargarian, Pepper, Whitney, and Sister Winter. Thanks so much, everyone, and if you'd like to contribute to Radio Westeros and find out more about patronage and the rewards we offer, which includes patron-exclusive episodes, please head on over to patreon.com slash radiowesteros. And now, it's time to get started with The Wolf Maid. Lyanna had only been sixteen, a childwoman of surpassing loveliness. Ned had loved her with all his heart. Lyanna Stark of Winterfell was born around 267 AC, the third child and only daughter of Rickard Stark, Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, and his wife, Lyara Stark. She joined her elder brothers Brandon and Eddard, and soon after was joined in turn by younger brother Benjen. Relatively little is known about Rickard Stark. He himself was an only child, the son of Edwile Stark and Marna Locke. Seeing as how Lord Rickard himself would be around 60 had he lived, the very old Lord Locke, who appears at Winterfell in A Song of Ice and Fire, could possibly be a close relation of his. Grandfather, uncle, cousin, or brother-in-law are all distinct possibilities, as is some kinship with Robert Glover's wife, Sybil Locke. As depicted on his tomb statue, Rickard was stern and dignified with the long face of the Starks. He was already the Lord of Winterfell when his son Brandon was born in 262 AC, so it's to be assumed his own father died relatively young. Given the fact that so many of the young lords and knights of his generation are known to have participated in the War of the Nine Penny Kings, we wonder if Rickard did as well, and possibly even his father, Lord Edwile, though it's not specifically mentioned. But if we consider that a fellow Northman, William Dustin's great-uncle, was there, as well as Stephen Baratheon, Brendan Tully, Quellen Greyjoy, Tywin Lannister, and his brother Kevin, and then Crown Prince Aerys Targaryen, we think it's fair to speculate that perhaps Rickard Stark, if not his father, did also join the effort. Whatever the truth of that is, it's a fact that Lord Rickard visited King's Landing in 264 AC, his visit inspiring in now King Aerys a brief fascination with the North, in which he made the rather preposterous suggestion of building a new wall a hundred leagues north of the existing one and claiming all the lands in between for the realm. Corin Halfhand notes that Lord Rickard was a friend of the Watch, so whether Ares simply grew bored with his idea or was actively dissuaded, we can be sure that there was some measure of relief when the king moved on to his next fascination. Lord Rickard was noted to be ambitious. Apparently encouraged by his maester, born Wallace Flowers in the Reach, he diverged from the relative isolationism of his predecessors and actively cultivated his relationships with House Tully and Baratheon, perhaps initially formed during the War of the Nine Penny Kings, with an eye on future matches for his children. He also arranged to have his second son fostered with the Lord of the Vale, along with the heir to Storm's End, likely in order to create a further bond with these great houses. 
It's even possible his trip in 264 was part of the same strategy and that his meetings with Ares and likely Ares's young hand, Tywin Lannister, were pure networking. If that was the case, that avenue seems to have borne little fruit, for we don't hear about Lord Rickard going to King's Landing again for nearly two decades. And while he maintained his connections with all the other lords paramount, including possibly even Lord Luther Tyrell, as Lady Olena tells Sansa that she was acquainted with her grandfather, his contact with Tywin Lannister in that time seems minimal. We know even less about his wife, Lyara Stark. She was Rickard's first cousin once removed, and her mother was a flint of the mountains. Her father was Roderick the Wandering Wolf Stark, who was the youngest son of Lord Baron Stark, and served at one point in the second son's sellsword company in Essos. We don't know when she died, but the fact that she's never mentioned indicates that it may have been early in her children's lives, perhaps after Benjen's birth. Whether her mother was alive or not, Lyanna seems to have had a relatively freeform childhood. Ned speaks of her strong will and the iron underneath her beauty. In King's Landing, after discovering Arya with Needle, Ned tells her how much she resembles her aunt, both in looks and spirit, saying, Lyanna might have carried a sword if my lord father had allowed it. And many months later, Bran would see a vision of two children playing at swords in front of the Winterfell heart tree. From her looks and behavior, he at first mistook the girl for his own sister, Arya, but the younger boy is clearly not himself, and the vision fades before he realizes whom he's seeing. From clues in the scene, and because Ned had drawn the comparison with Arya, the reader is able to conclude that the children in this vision are Lyanna and Benjen. Two children danced across the godswood, hooting at one another as they dueled with broken branches. The girl was the older and taller of the two. Arya, Bran thought eagerly as he watched her leap up onto a rock and cut at the boy. But that couldn't be right. If the girl was Arya, the boy was Bran himself, and he had never worn his hair so long. And Arya never beat me playing swords, the way that girl is beating him. She slashed the boy across his thigh so hard that his leg went out from under him, and he fell into the pool and began to splash and shout, "'You be quiet, stupid,' the girl said, tossing her own branch aside. "'It's just water. Do you want old Nan to hear and run and tell father?' She knelt and pulled her brother from the pool, but before she got him out, the two of them were gone. We also hear that Lyanna was an expert rider. Lady Barbara Dustin, who had a youthful affair with Brandon Stark before she was married to Lord William Dustin, notes that both Brandon and his sister loved to ride, a pair of centaurs, she called them. And Harwin, son of Holland, Winterfell's master of horse, again draws a comparison between Lyanna and Arya, telling Arya, You ride like a Northman, milady. Your aunt was the same, Lady Lyanna. It's an interesting note that when the story opens, Lyanna has been dead less than 15 years, so there are numerous people in the story, among them many family retainers, who would remember her. The principal impression is of her wildness, her beauty, and her horsemanship. Ned tells Arya that she had the wolf blood, but adds sadly that it led her to an early grave, a pretty clear indication that he doesn't hold Rhaegar Targaryen entirely responsible for her death, as we'll see Robert Baratheon does. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Lyanna was likely recently flowered when her father announced her betrothal to Robert Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End. She seems to have been relatively accepting of the situation. At least neither Ned nor anyone else records her objections if she made them. 
except for the matter of her expectations of Robert's fidelity. Here's a passage from Ned's memories of his sister. Robert will never keep to one bed, Lyanna had told him at Winterfell on the night long ago when their father had promised her hand to the young lord of Storm's End. I hear he has gotten a child on some girl in the Vale. Ned had held the babe in his arms. He could scarcely deny her, nor would he lie to his sister, but he had assured her that what Robert did before their betrothal was of no matter, that he was a good man and true who would love her with all his heart. Lyanna had only smiled. Love is sweet, dearest Ned, but it cannot change a man's nature. For a girl so young, she seems to have had remarkable insight into human nature, not only that of her betrothed, but that of her sweet brother, who loved and idolized Robert. Ned wanted to believe the best of his friend, but Lyanna saw the truth of what the man would be. Again, she doesn't seem to have protested out loud, but she spoke the truth as she saw it, and we can imagine that it might have chafed her in some way. Based on Lyanna's knowledge of the babe in the veil, who is, in fact, the girl Maya Stone, who leads Catelyn to the Eyrie when she first arrives there in A Game of Thrones, we can assume the betrothal was announced sometime in late winter, probably in late 280 AC, but almost definitely before the comet appeared in the sky and spring was deemed to have arrived in 281. In any case, Lyanna and Robert's betrothal was public knowledge by the time Lord Walter Went announced a great tourney to be held at his seat at Harrenhal to celebrate his daughter's name day. In the annals of Westeros, 281 AC is known as the Year of the False Spring, Winter had held the land in its icy grip for close on two years, but now at last the snows were melting, the woods were greening, the days were growing longer. Though the white ravens had not yet flown, there were many even at the citadel of Old Town who believed that winter's end was nigh. As warm winds blew from the south, lords and knights from throughout the Seven Kingdoms made their way toward Harrenhal to compete in Lord Wendt's great tournament on the shore of the God's Eye, which promised to be the largest and most magnificent competition since the time of Aegon the Unlikely. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all ye lords, knights, and squires of the Seven Kingdoms, to Lord Wentz's great castle at Harrenhal, on the fifteenth day of the ninth month, to assemble for a grand parade, to open a tournament of arms, which shall commence the following day, when all manner of knights who wish to compete shall assemble with their arms at the hour of the nightingale. Each knight shall bear six lances fitted with coronels, and the shields of said knights shall be covered with neither iron nor steel. Generous purses shall be awarded to the victors of the jousting, the seven-sided melee, the horse race, the archery and axe-throwing contests, and the tourney of singers. All comers are welcome, and all shall be guaranteed safe conduct to and from the festival. Come to Harrenhal to be a part of the greatest tourney of them all. 
We first hear about the year of the false spring in Ned's memories as he lays in the black cells. It then comes up in four different point of views in A Storm of Swords, and we're able to piece together a lot of what Ned's memories had sketched. And then, just in case we readers had forgotten it, it reappears in Barristan's memories in A Dance with Dragons. It's clearly a year in which significant things occurred in Westeros, and the World of Ice Fire confirms this for us by devoting an entire chapter to it. When Lord Went declared he would host a tourney at his seat at Harrenhal, late in 280, winter had been going on for nearly two years. Like many tourneys, it may have been an opportunity for House Went to display its wealth and power, and there's no doubt that the purses being offered exceeded all of the most lavish tourneys in recent memory. But there are indications that there were other reasons behind the planning of the event. In A Dance with Dragons, Sir Barristan recalls that Lord Went announced the tourney following a visit from his brother, Sir Oswell Went of the Kingsguard, and the world book picks up on that offhand comment by suggesting that there was more to the tourney than met the eye. In order to understand the politics of what may have gone into the gathering on the banks of the God's Eye, a brief summary of Aerys II's reign is in order. Aerys's reign began when he was 18 years old following the death of his father, Jaehaerys II, in 262 AC, after a brief reign of three years. Aerys was handsome and had fought well and made friends amongst his fellows during the War of the Nine Penny Kings. He was charming, but also vain and proud, declaring his wish to be the greatest king in the history of Westeros. At the outset of his reign, Aerys dismissed the seasoned counselors who had served his father and grandfather and replaced them with men of his own age. Notably, he named Tywin Lannister, the son of Lord Tytos Lannister, as his hand. Tywin, though but two years older than the new king, had been the one Ares had chosen to dub him a knight when he was sixteen. Tywin had already earned a name for himself as a knight in the War of the Nine Penny Kings, and in the year before Jaehaerys' death, he famously restored order to the tempestuous Westerlands by extinguishing House Rain and Tarbeck following their uprising against his father. Ares preferred parties and women, but Tywin was serious and diligent about the business of ruling the Seven Kingdoms. While the king amused himself with passing fancies, like the scheme to relocate the wall, and his mistresses and entertainments, Tywin set about the business of ruling, from infrastructure to trade to finance and law. He repealed most of the reforms that Aegon V had enacted to curb the powers of the great lords and hosted many tourneys, though he himself was not one who particularly enjoyed such pursuits. While Aerys's behavior grew erratic, Tywin helped the realm to prosper and gained a reputation as being the true ruler of the Seven Kingdoms, which ultimately didn't sit very well with his king. At the same time, Aerys was apparently pursuing Tywin's cousin and then wife, Joanna Lannister. The details given in the world book indicate that whatever passed between the king and his hand's lady may have been a part of the rift that would develop between the two men as Ares became increasingly paranoid and volatile. Following the birth of Tywin's children, Jaime and Cersei, and the death of Lord Tytos Lannister, the king brought the court and his son Rhaegar to Casterly Rock and remained there for nearly a year. Upon the court's return to King's Landing, the division between the two men became increasingly apparent. Ares began to actively oppose his hand, overriding him in some cases and simply choosing the opposite path to what Tywin advised in others. It's possible only the Crown's financial indebtedness to House Lannister restrained him from replacing Lord Tywin outright. During Lady Joanna's visit to the capital to present her two children at court in 272 AC, Ares humiliated her so badly that Tywin attempted to resign his post, 
but the king refused to accept his resignation. As we'll see later with Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark, it would appear that Ares had little taste for actually ruling and making decisions himself. And then there's the possibility that Ares simply enjoyed tormenting his one-time friend. But in spite of it all, Tywin still dreamed that Ares would agree to marry his son Rhaegar to his daughter Cersei, in spite of their age difference. In 276 AC, Tywin hosted a tourney at Lannispor in honor of the birth of Prince Viserys. During the festivities, he broached the subject of a betrothal to Ares, only to have the king outright refuse to consider marrying his son to the daughter of a, quote, servant. The following year, with the king sliding into madness, Lord Dennis Darklin of Duskendale made an ill-considered move that was intended to force the crown to award him a charter for his port city that would see it regain its trade relevance by reducing the fees and tariffs that had led to its decline in favor of the capital city. He invited the king to visit him to hear his petition, and when Lord Tywin strongly advised the king to refuse, the oppositional Ares, of course, did the exact opposite and traveled to Duskendale. What happened next was sheer folly. When the king's party arrived in Duskendale, he was seized along with his escort. His king's guard, Sir Gawain Gaunt, was killed, and the defiant lord of Duskendale sent word to the hand that he would release the king only when his demands were met. Any attempt to storm his walls, he promised, would result in the death of the king. While Tywin moved in to blockade the Dunfort by land and sea, Aerys remained captive for half a year. Tywin's resolve to not treat with the Darklands came as no surprise to those familiar with the fate of the Reigns and Tarbecks. At last, the Hand made a final demand for unconditional surrender, lest the royal army storm the walls and put every man, woman, and child within to the sword. While his fellow counselors felt this was too dangerous to the king, arguing that Lord Darklin might make good upon his promise to kill Ares, Tywin reportedly remarked coolly, He may, or he may not, but if he does, we have a better king right here. The better option, of course, was Rhaegar, still unmarried and, at 18, apparently all that could be desired in a crown prince. The World Book tells us that, quote, "...scholars have debated ever since as to Lord Tywin's intent. Did he believe Lord Darklin would back down, or was he, in truth, willing and perhaps even eager to see Ares die so that Prince Rhaegar might take the Iron Throne?" Given Tywin's long familiarity with Ares's opposition to his decisions and his well-known ambitions with regard to Rhaegar and Ares's recent humiliating refusal of Cersei as a match for the prince, not to mention the king's now obvious madness, the odds seem pretty good that the Hand was perfectly willing to let events take their course at the least, if not actively involved in the outcome. And the outcome, of course, was that the Dunfort was indeed stormed, with Sir Barristan Selmy rescuing the king, and Ares then falling so deeply into madness and paranoia that he thereafter refused to leave the Red Keep for years, and even grew estranged from his own son, whom he suspected of conspiring with Tywin to have him murdered at Duskendale. But in his madness, he apparently remained aware of the threat of Tywin somehow managing to achieve his goal of a marriage between his daughter and Rhaegar, and so Ares sent his cousin, Lord Stephen Baratheon, to Essos in search of a suitable bride for his son. There were rumors that upon Stephen's return, he would replace Tywin's hand, thus removing the threat of House Lannister from the capital once and for all. 
But Stefan's mission did not succeed, and he perished on his way back to Storm's End. Prince Rhaegar wed Princess Elia of Dorne the following year, and while it doesn't seem like the match was arranged by Ares, given that there had once been a discussion of marrying Elia to Tywin's son Jaime, it's possible that the match was seen as yet another slap in the face to his hand, thus gaining Ares' approval. But with the king's madness basically incapacitating him, Tywin continued to rule the Seven Kingdoms in all but name, which, of course, further enraged the king. When Tywin brought his daughter to Kor in 280 AC in hopes of making a match for her, with Rhaegar, if the gossip can be believed, as Elia of Dorne was known to be fragile and had almost died birthing her first child, he also brought along his son Jaime. Already known for his prowess as a knight, Jamie had won his spurs during Sir Arthur Dane's campaign against the Kingswood Brotherhood. When Sir Harlan Grandison of the Kingsguard passed away, apparently in his sleep, Ares jumped at the opportunity to twist the knife in his old friend's back once more and named Jamie, Tywin's heir, to his Kingsguard. And that was it for Tywin. He turned in his chain of office the next day, departing King's Landing along with his daughter to retire in cold rage to Casterly Rock. The new hand was Lord Owen Merriweather, a well-known sycophant whose amiable fawning would leave no doubt that, quote, the man who wore the crown also ruled the Seven Kingdoms. While this situation may have made the Mad King happy, that it was not an improvement for the realm would soon become brutally obvious. It was in the wake of these events that, in a surprising move, King Aerys announced that he had chosen the Went Tourney as the occasion for Jaime Lannister's investiture into the Kingsguard. Aerys hadn't left the keep since the defiance of Duskendale, and had succumbed to a fascination with dragon eggs and fire that led him to elevate the pyromancer Rossart to the small council and use his skills as a method of execution. Fire became the king's justice, and Ares's attempt to hatch eggs found on Dragonstone suggests that he may have suffered from dragon dreams, as so many of his family did. At this time, he also brought the eunuch spymaster Varys to court, and though it became common to refer to Ares as the Mad King, many kept these words and their true feelings secret, since the spider was known to have spies everywhere. Ares's estrangement from Prince Rhaegar had grown so bitter that it was said he meant to name his younger son Viserys, a lad of four years old, as his heir instead of Rhaegar. So whatever led him to decide to leave the capital and attend the tourney must have been rooted very deeply in the king's madness and paranoia. And indeed, there were reasons to question the true purpose of the tourney. The purses, as noted, were enormous, and there were those who whispered that they far surpassed Lord Wendt's ability to pay, not to mention the costs of hosting such an extravagant event. The conclusion, among many, was that there had to be a shadow financier, and that the purpose of the gathering was to host a secret meeting of as many great lords as could be assembled, in order to discuss what to do about the situation in King's Landing. And certainly no one would have expected Ares to attend, so it seems like this could have been the intent. As an opportunity, it would have seemed ideal, and there was the precedent of the Great Council of 101 that determined the succession of Jaehaerys I being held at Harrenhal. 
There's some indication in the subtext that the shadow financier could have been Tywin, as we suggested in our Tywin episode, but it could even have been, as many suspected, Prince Rhaegar himself, especially if it was a message from Sir Oswell Went of the Kingsguard that had led to the plan. And these words Rhaegar spoke to Jaime in the following year might also support this idea. When this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but... Well, it does no good to speak of roads not taken. We shall talk when I return. Whatever the pretext behind the tourney, it was apparently a suggestion from Varys that led to the king's attendance, which changed everything. The king's present would add an element of paranoia to the proceedings, not just his own, but amongst the attendees who would now be scrutinized by Aerys's loyalists and lickspittles for any sign of dissent or treason. A review of who was present gives some possible insight into what the objectives may have been. In spite of the fact that Queen Rayala and Prince Viserys remained in King's Landing, all six members of the King's Guard were present to induct their new brother, Jamie Lannister, into their order. Tywin, of course, remained at Casterly Rock, having quarreled with the King so recently, and Cersei was with him, though many Westermen did attend. Lord John Arryn came down from the Erie along with some of his bannermen, including Yon Royce and Eon Hunter, as well as his one-time wards, Eddard Stark of Winterfell and Lord Robert Baratheon of Storm's End. Ned Stark was joined at the tourney by his siblings, Brandon, Lyanna, and Benjen. It's not clear why Lord Rickard chose not to attend, but perhaps he was to be represented by his son and heir, Brandon, in any deliberations that took place. It's also possible that Ned, who had recently been home at Winterfell, had brought some message to the Vale from his father to Rickard's fellow Lords Paramount, John Arryn, and Robert Baratheon. The Starks also met a number of their own bannermen at the tourney, men from House Dustin, Hornwood, Mormont, and Manderley, and Howland Reed of Greywater Watch. There was even a man of the Night's Watch present, a recruiter, whom many speculate was none other than Yorin, since he tells Arya in A Clash of Kings that he'd been traveling the King's Road, bringing men to the Wall for close to thirty years. Lord Mace Tyrell represented the Reach, while from Dorne, Prince Oberyn Martell joined his uncle, Prince Lewin Martell of the Kingsguard, and his sister, Rhaegar's wife, Elia, who was pregnant with her second child, and was accompanied by her ladies, including Ashara Dane of Starfall. A number of Rhaegar's close companions were also present, including John Connington and Richard Lonmouth, both from the Stormlands. Obviously, many Riverlands house were represented, including knights from House Haig and Frey, who would play a role in the jousting, along with a knight of House Blount from the Crownlands. It's hard to imagine that the Tullys were absent, for instance, since Lord Hoster's late wife was a Went, and we expect many others who weren't specifically named did attend, since Sir Barristan would tell Danny years later that, quote, the greatest lords and mightiest champions of the Seven Kingdoms were present. Aerys would have brought most of his supporters from court, including the Master of Coin, Carlton Chelstead, and the Master of Laws, Simon Staunton. Whether Varys, Pycelle, or the Hand, Lord Merriweather, were there isn't mentioned, though we can guess that perhaps the latter remained in King's Landing to rule in the King's absence. As spineless as Lord Merriweather seems to have been, it's noted that he made an effort to keep the peace between the two factions at court, and perhaps his presence at the tourney may have averted some of the worst of the king's paranoid behavior. In any event, it was a gathering of unprecedented scope, and surely would have been a fine opportunity to, quote, discuss ways and means of dealing with the madness of King Aerys II, 
had the king not decided to attend. As it was, it seems like the king thought that his presence might win him back the love of his people, although those very same people were almost universally shocked at the physical state of the king who had allowed no one and no blade to touch him since the defiance of Duskendale four years earlier, and so he presented as an unwashed old man with long, wild hair and beard and filthy, uncut fingernails. It wasn't just the king's appearance that was shocking, either. Guests at the tourney observed his mood swings, from mirth to rage to sulking to weeping, all in the blink of an eye. Given his condition, it probably comes as no surprise that the king was not going to take well to any surprises, and so when the unexpected happened, it would trigger the most negative of his emotions, rage, fear, and paranoia. It probably didn't help that the so-called Lickspittle lords who composed the king's camp, those who had found a way to benefit from Ares's madness and unpredictability that would be unlikely to continue if Rhaegar was named regent or even king, filled his ears with whispers about the evil intentions of the crown prince and his allies. But it seems like the tourney started out normally enough. Ned remembers the events as positive, to a point. He could see the deep green of the grass and smell the pollen on the wind, warm days and cool nights, and the sweet taste of wine. He remembered Brandon's laughter and Robert's berserk valor in the melee, the way he laughed as he unhorsed men left and right. He remembered Jamie Lannister, a golden youth in scaled white armor, kneeling on the grass in front of the king's pavilion and making his vows to protect and defend King Aerys. Afterward, Sir Oswell went to help Jamie to his feet, and the white bull himself, Lord Commander Sir Gerald Hightower, fastened the snowy cloak of the king's guard about his shoulders. All six white swords were there to welcome their newest brother. Jamie Lannister recalls the sweetness of his induction into the King's Guard and the cheers that rang from the assembled crowd, though the World Book notes that the King thought the cheers were for him. Barristan Selmy tells Danny the tourney was, quote, a notable event. Besides the jousting, there was a melee in the old style, fought between seven teams of knights, as well as archery and axe-throwing, a horse race, a tournament of singers, a mummer show, and many feasts and frolics. Lord Went was as open-handed as he was rich. The lavish purses he proclaimed drew hundreds of challengers. And then Mira Reed describes the pageantry and romance to Bran Stark when telling the story of the adventures of a little Cranachman, most likely her father. The daughter of the great castle reigned as queen of love and beauty when the tourney opened. Five champions were sworn to defend her crown, four brothers of Harrenhal, and her famous uncle, a white knight of the King's Guard. And there were others fairer still. One was the wife of the Dragon Prince, who'd brought a dozen lady companions to attend her. The knights all begged them for favors to tie about their lances. But all agree that the sweetness and promise of the spring celebration turned sour very quickly. To begin with, Lyanna Stark came upon three squires harassing and kicking Howland Reed, Lyanna herself was no more than 14 years old, and the squires were boys her age or older. But neither facing boys, who were likely older and bigger than she, nor being outnumbered by three to one, stopped her from charging in and laying about with a tourney sword, howling, according to Mira Reed, That's my father's man you're kicking. Being tender as well as fierce, Lyanna then took Howland under her wing and brought him to her family's pavilion to care for his injuries. There she introduced him to her brothers and told them the story of what had happened. 
Lyanna, being, quote, not easy to refuse, insisted that Howland attend the feast in the Great Hall that evening, and Benjen helped Howland to find suitable clothing. That night is the first recorded interaction between Lyanna and Rhaegar Targaryen, although it's a somewhat one-sided one. As Mira tells it, the dragon prince sang a song so sad it made the wolfmaid sniffle, but when her pup brother teased her for crying, she poured wine over his head. Many speculate that perhaps the song Rhaegar sang was Jenny's song, the same song Rob mentions to Cat at Old Stones in A Storm of Swords, and Thomas Evans sings for The Ghost of High Heart, and when Merritt Frey arrives at Old Stones in the A Storm of Swords epilogue. Sansa hears the imprisoned bard Marillion playing it in A Feast for Crows, and the World Book tells us that the story of Jenny of Old Stones and Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, is, quote, beloved of singers, storytellers, and maids, even to this day. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. The ones she had lost and the ones she had found and the ones who had loved her the most. Ones who'd been gone for so very long She couldn't remember their names They spun her around on the damp old stones Spun away all her sorrows and pain She never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave She never wanted to leave, never wanted to leave. They danced through the day and into the night, through the snow that swept through the hall. From winter to summer, then winter again Till the walls did crumble and fall And she never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave She never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave She never wanted to leave Never wanted to leave High in the halls of the kings who are gone Jenny would dance with her ghosts And that was Jenny's song performed for us by Lauren, a.k.a. Shakes of Thrones. And we love that rendition. Uh, Brought me to tears just like it did Liana. And we want to hear from you if it had a similar effect on you as well. 
Uh, Lauren can be found at Shakes of Thrones on Twitter and her website, ShakespeareThrones.com offers literary analysis of Shakespeare and A Song of Ice and Fire and original Game of Thrones inspired verse. So thank you, Lauren, for giving us this wonderful gift. So, songs and entertainments aside, that night at the feast, Highland and Diana were also able to identify the three bullying squires as boys who served knights from House Haig, Blount, and Frey. And we have to wonder if perhaps the knight from House Blount could have been none other than Sir Boros. He's more than old enough to have participated. Osmond Kettleblack thinks he's between 40 and 50. And we know he was an accomplished knight, although time would tell that he was also a bully and a craven, and altogether unsuitable to wear the white cloak. So more than fitting for someone who might have had a squire who was also a bully. Benjen offered to find Howland some armor and a horse so that he could challenge the knights whom the squire served himself. But Howland was uncertain, since Cranachmen aren't comfortable on horseback or with swords and lances. He spent the night in Ned's tent and prayed to the old gods for wisdom. Howland Reed wasn't the only one having a difficult night. Jamie Lannister recalls how the glory of his investiture went sour when Ares declared he had no need of seven king's guard at Harrenhal and commanded him to return to King's Landing to guard the queen and Prince Viserys. When Sir Gerald Hightower offered to take his place so that Jamie could compete in the tourney, Ares replied, He'll win no glory here. He's mine now, not Tywin's. He'll serve as I see fit. I am the king. I rule and he'll obey. And Jamie recalls that as the moment when he understood that, quote, Ares had chosen him to spite his father, to rob Lord Tywin of his heir, rather than because of his prowess or promise as a knight. He honored me, and then he spat on me, is how he recalls the occasion years later. And so Sir Jamie set out for King's Landing as commanded, destined to take no part in the rest of the tourney. As fate would have it, on that first day of jousting, the Knight of House Blount won a place among the champions, while the Hague and the Frey Knights won on the second morning. And then, late on the second day, a Mystery Knight appeared in the lists. Mystery Knights weren't uncommon at tourneys, so this wouldn't have been anything to wonder at, but Ares wasn't someone who liked surprises or mysteries, and he had a particular paranoia about this Mystery Knight. The knight was described as, quote, a slight young man in ill-fitting armor whose device was a carved white weirwood tree, its features twisted in mirth. Ares became convinced that the laughter was directed at him and that the mystery knight was none other than Jamie Lannister. When the knight of the laughing tree, as he quickly became known, defeated three of the champions in successive tilts, the commons rejoiced, but Ares became enraged. The three defeated champions, of course, were the knights from houses Blount, Hay, and Frey, and rather than take a ransom for their arms and horses, the mystery knight declared, Teach your squires honor, that shall be ransom enough. And so, when the offending squires had been duly chastised, the defeated knights received their horses and armor back, and it seemed like the prayers of the Cranachmen had been answered, and that would be the end of it. But the king saw things differently. The story Mira Reed tells Bran in A Storm of Swords relates that at the evening's feast, Robert Baratheon and Richard Lonmouth both swore to unmask the mystery knight. Ares, it says, quote, urged men to challenge him, declaring that the face behind that helm was no friend of his. 
But the knight did not return to the list the next day, and the paranoid king became even more enraged. Mira tells Bran that he, quote, sent his son the dragon prince to seek the man, but all they ever found was his painted shield hanging abandoned in a tree. The world book relates that the king was certain that this traitor who will not show his face had been warned by someone close to him, and given the fact that he had apparently sent his son Rhaegar to seek out the man, in this instance, we have to say that we agree with Ares. What seems to us most likely to have happened, given what came next, is that Rhaegar did seek out the mystery knight and did indeed unmask him. Or her, as it happens, because there's fairly universal consensus in the fandom that the Knight of the Laughing Tree was none other than Lyanna Stark, dressed up in the borrowed armor her younger brother had offered to find for Howland Reed and bearing a sigil that reflected her northern roots and personality. Lyanna was, as mentioned previously, an accomplished horsewoman and clearly was well acquainted with swordplay. She had the skill that Howland lacked and the motivation to teach the squires a lesson. Her wildness, or wolf's blood, is noted by her brother to have led to her early grave, and it could be that this is what he was referring to. And while some might argue that a young woman would be unable to defeat three full-grown knights in a joust, or that no one could mistake a woman for a man, remember that Jamie asserts that jousting is three-quarters horsemanship, and that when Kat saw Brienne fighting in the melee at Bitterbridge, she took her for a man, even when she spoke, until Renly identified her. And so now we arrive at an area of speculation. If Rhaegar indeed discovered Lyanna Stark to be the Knight of the Laughing Tree, we wonder what might his reaction have been. Going by what we know about Rhaegar and his estrangement from his father, it seems very likely that he might have sought to shield the fierce young Northwoman. And in the Arya chapter, just before the Bran chapter, where we hear about the tourney from Mira Reed, the bard Thomas Evans sings a song that's always seemed to us to be a clue. Here are the words. My feather bed is deep and soft, and there I'll lay you down. I'll dress you all in yellow silk, and on your head a crown. For you shall be my lady love, and I shall be your lord. I'll always keep you warm and safe, and guard you with my sword. And how she smiled, and how she laughed, the maiden of the tree. She spun away, and said to him, No feather bed for me. I'll wear a gown of golden leaves, and bind my hair with grass. But you can be my forest love and I, your forest lass. So the mentions of the Lord giving his lady a crown and her being called the Maiden of the Tree, of course, are what makes us wonder if this is a clever reference to the Night of the Laughing Tree story. But if it is, then the facts that the meeting in the song apparently took place in a forest setting with the Knight of the Laughing Tree's shield found hanging in a tree, along with the reference to keeping the lady safe, are things that really support the idea that Rhaegar did seek out the knight and unmask her, after which he warned her about his father's paranoia and conviction that the mystery knight was, quote, no friend of his. There are elements of this song that also indicate a romance, and we'll look more closely at those in our next section. But for now, our focus will be on the crown. Mira Reed's story concludes with, It was the dragon prince who won the tourney in the end, and this brings us back to the first time we heard about the tourney in Ned's point of view in Game of Thrones. Yet when the jousting began, the day belonged to Rhaegar Targaryen. 
The crown prince wore the armor he would die in, gleaming black plate with the three-headed dragon of his house wrought in rubies on the breast. A plume of scarlet silk streamed behind him when he rode, and it seemed no lance could touch him. Brandon fell to him, and Bronzion Royce, and even the splendid Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. Robert had been jesting with John and old Lord Hunter as the prince circled the field after unhorsing Sir Barristan in the final tilt to claim the champion's crown. Ned remembered the moment when all the smiles died, when Prince Rhaegar Targaryen urged his horse past his own wife, the Dornish princess Elia Martell, to lay the Queen of Beauty's laurel in Lyanna's lap. He could see it still, a crown of winter roses, blue as frost. So there's a lot to unpack there, but the crown of winter roses is the standout element. When Bran protested the ending of Mira's story, he said it should have been the three bad knights who heard him, not their squires. Then the little Cranigman could have killed them all. The part about the ransoms was stupid, and the mystery knight should win the tourney, defeating every challenger and name the wolf maid the queen of love and beauty. Mira's reply, she was, but that's a sadder story, ties her tale about the mystery knight to Ned's memory, and Bran's conviction that the mystery knight should have won the tourney provides a compelling reason for Rhaegar to honor Lyanna with the crown of love and beauty. As a lover of songs and tales, Rhaegar may well have felt the same as Bran and decided this would be a suitable way to honor Lyanna without revealing her subterfuge. But if that was the case, he had seriously miscalculated. Ned remembers the moment when all the smiles died, and the world book notes that Ares was suspicious of his son's victory and was convinced by his Lickspittle lords that it only made sense if Rhaegar was trying to win Winterfell to his cause. But Yandel goes on to point out the reactions of Lyanna's brothers and betrothed. Brandon Stark, the heir to Winterfell, had to be restrained from confronting Rhaegar at what he took as a slight upon his sister's honor, for Lyanna Stark had been betrothed to Robert Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End. Eddard Stark, Brandon's younger brother and a close friend to Lord Robert, was calmer but no more pleased. As for Robert Baratheon himself, some say he laughed at the prince's gesture, claiming that Rhaegar had done no more than pay Lyanna her due, but those who knew him better say the young lord brooded on the insult and that his heart hardened toward the Prince of Dragonstone from that day forth. Assumptions about people's thoughts and feelings aside, it seems like Rhaegar's actions poured some fuel onto an already volatile political situation. As for his victory, it's noted that the prince was not known for competing in tourneys and had apparently not intended to do so, as his participation apparently came as a surprise to those in attendance. Of note, he defeated Brandon Stark and Bronzion Royce, as well as four knights of the Kingsguard, including Sir Barristan Selmy, the finest lance in the realm, in the final tilt. We have a potential comparison in story of Jorah Mormont's victory at the Lannisport tourney, where a lady's favor made all the difference. But we're going to reach into the tales of Duncan Egg for a possible hint to the curious twist of fate that led Prince Rhaegar to the champion's laurels. In the Hedge Knight, when Sir Duncan the Tall is forced to compete in a trial by seven against his accuser, Prince Arian Targaryen, Crown Prince Baylor, the Prince of Dragonstone, agrees to stand with him. Arion Seven included three members of the Kingsguard, and Baylor makes note of that fact when Sir Duncan's Seven are strategizing. Their oath forbids them to harm a prince of the blood. Fortunately, I am such. 
Keep the others off me long enough, and I shall deal with the Kingsguard. Earlier in the same story, Dunk had made note of how easily Prince Valar, Baylor's son, seemed to win his victories in the tourney tilts. In A Game of Thrones, we see a similar theme struck when King Robert declares he will compete in the melee at the hand's tourney. Barristan tells him, It isn't seemly that the king should ride into the melee. It would not be a fair contest. Who would dare strike you? And Ned adds, There's not a man in the Seven Kingdoms who would dare risk your displeasure by hurting you. Could this be a case where another Prince of Dragonstone took advantage of a situation to ensure his own victory in the tourney? Surely he would be aware that his king's guard would be bound by their oaths to not risk hurting him, while melees such as Robert proposed to enter in A Game of Thrones are notoriously brutal, even jousting can be dangerous, as we see numerous times in the series. In spite of the fact that Rhaegar had competed in the tourney Tywin Lannister hosted to celebrate Viserys' birth five years previously and fell to Sir Arthur Dane, we do think it's possible that Barristan and the others may not have been trying their best to defeat the prince they were sworn to protect. At any rate, Following Rhaegar's crowning of Lyanna Stark, her family and betrothed were offended and his father's paranoia was inflamed. Already suspicious of his son, Ares was now convinced that Rhaegar's aim had been to curry the favor of the commons while forging secret alliances with other nobles. The false spring ended not long after the tourney itself, and by the end of 281, Winter had returned to Westeros, quote, with a vengeance. And vengeance turns out to be a perfect word to characterize what would happen next as the year that would be forever known as the year of the fall spring drew to a close. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With that simple garland of pale blue roses, Rhaegar Targaryen had begun the dance that would rip the Seven Kingdoms apart and bring about his own death, and thousands more. People of Westeros, I am the king, and I demand your aid. 
Not two days since, at Lord Wentz tourney at Hall, a knight appeared before me whose arms were singularly designed to insult and to make mock of me. This knight, with a laughing tree on his shield, dipped his lance to me in a show of respect. But he is no friend of mine. I sent my son to seek this traitor who would not show his face, but he can't do anything right. And so, I appeal to the realm to reveal this traitor's identity, that he may be brought before me to face justice. Do this in the name of King Ares the Great, second of his name of House Targaryen, and great shall be your reward. As the year ended, and Ares had his pyromancers lighting wildfire caches on the ramparts of King's Landing to try to ward off the snow, Rhaegar and Elia returned to Dragonstone, where the princess was delivered of a son, the couple's second child. At the House of the Undying in Carth, Daenerys has a vision of her brother and Elia with the new babe. Aegon, he said to a woman nursing a newborn babe in a great wooden bed, what better name for a king? Will you make a song for him? the woman asked. He has a song, the man replied. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. So by all appearances, Rhaegar believed at the end of 281 that his wife had borne him an heir, a child who would fulfill a great destiny. But Danny's vision continues. He looked up when he said it, and his eyes met Danny's, and it seemed as if he saw her standing there beyond the door. There must be one more, he said, though whether he was speaking to her or the woman in the bed, she could not say. The dragon has three heads. Many interpret this as Rhaegar having a parallel vision of Danny and see it as a catalyst for him deciding that he must have three children. As a catalyst only, of course, because Rhaegar had a reputation for reading scrolls from which he had apparently gleaned some information that led him to believe that he was a promised prince of the line of dragon lords. But his great-great-uncle, Maester Aemon, with whom he exchanged letters, would later tell Samuel Tarly he became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy, for a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain the bleeding star had to be a comet. And so, even after the events at Harrenhal, Rhaegar believed that Elias' son was the fulfillment of the prophecy he had been studying for so much of his life. But he apparently also came to believe that the dragon must have three heads, and many fans believe this to indicate that he thought he must have another daughter, that he believed he needed to recreate the trio of Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya, and that the vision of Danny represented that child for him, and either introduced or reinforced that belief. So what about Elia? We know very little about her opinions and motivations. We do know that after Aegon's birth, the maesters told her that there must be no more children. Her health was too fragile. She had nearly died giving birth to Rhaenys two years earlier, and this must be her final child. Held up against Rhaegar's apparent conviction that he must have a third child, it's not difficult to see how he might have convinced her that it was time House Targaryen returned to the practice of polygamy so that he could have that third child. We also have to acknowledge the possibility that Rhaegar, like so many of his fellow Targaryens, also experienced dragon dreams. Could something in the nature of the prophecy he was reading, or the dreams he was having, have convinced him that the third child was necessary due to some fate 
that lay in wait for his elder children. It's hard to say, and prophecy is notoriously tricky, but the idea that Rhaegar made a choice to safeguard against some tragedy that ultimately led to that tragedy occurring seems very Martinian. Back to Ilya. While the World Book and Ned's memories record that Rhaegar naming Lyanna as the Queen of Love and Beauty at Harrenhal was shocking or an insult to his wife, we don't get to see her reaction. Everything we know about how she behaved in the aftermath seems remarkably normal. Delivering her child, staying on Dragonstone until journeying to King's Landing at some point the following year, likely to meet her husband before he marched to war. And while there's an assumption that the caution of Prince Doran, her elder brother, in committing his army of 10,000 men to Ares during the rebellion was due to his offense over Ilya's treatment, we should remember that Doran Martell is an innately cautious man and that in the present story, he remains committed to his alliance with House Targaryen with the goal of punishing Ilya's murderers. And he never mentions or thinks about the supposed insult of Rhaegar's behavior or his rage over it. In fact, in The Winds of Winter, Ariadne 1 preview chapter, and light spoilers ahead, Doran shows his daughter a letter he's received from John Connington in which Aerys's former hand and Rhaegar's friend begs for an alliance with Dorne by revealing that Elia's son had survived the sack of King's Landing and by invoking not only Elia's memory, but by reminding Doran that he, John, had been, quote, a leal servant of your good brother. All of this seems very important considering what happened next. The World Book tells us that, as Winter gripped the capital once more, Rhaegar was absent, nor was he on Dragonstone. It says, with the coming of the new year, the crown prince had taken to the road with half a dozen of his closest friends and confidants on a journey that would ultimately lead him back to the Riverlands. Not ten leagues from Harrenhal, Rhaegar fell upon Lyanna Stark of Winterfell and carried her off, lighting a fire that would consume his house and kin and all those he loved, and half the realm besides. What's truly fascinating about this passage is that an earlier version of the world book related it subtly differently, saying, Rhaegar would once again come face to face with Lyanna Stark of Winterfell and with her light a fire that would consume his house and kin and all those he loved and half the realm besides. This version implies agency on Lyanna's part, something that's further hinted at by Ned's wolf's blood reference. Clearly, the edit has purposefully obscured this aspect, while at the same time bringing the historical narrative in line with the beliefs of Maester Yandel's intended audience, who was Robert Baratheon. A nice view into both George's process and the theme of the unreliability of Maesters when it comes to relating history that he likes to play with. So while the actual events remain shrouded in mystery, there is one fact that is certain. Not ten leagues from Harrenhal, Rhaegar met Lyanna Stark, and from wherever that was and whatever occurred, they left together. The reasons can essentially be boiled down to three possibilities. Number one, elopement. They somehow developed a plan to run away together, or possibly did so on the spur of the moment. Number two, kidnap. Rhaegar, either by chance or design, simply seized Lyanna and took her unwillingly to a secret location as his captive. 
And number three, something else. Some set of circumstances that forced the situation. And some of you may be familiar with our favorite theory that the something else was a rescue. So now we're going to go through the possibilities, and at the end, we'll conclude this segment with a look at a piece of world building that relates closely to Leana and can give us some strong hints about her story. The first option is elopement. This idea proposes that either by a prearranged plan or spontaneously upon reconnecting, the pair decided to run away together. Given what we've been told about Rhaegar, the recent birth of his son, his dedication to a prophecy of some sort, and his reputation as a noble prince, elopement really doesn't feel right. Barristan Selmy would think years later that, quote, Rhaegar would have been a finer king than any of them. In fact, Barristan's regrets mainly seem to be about his own failures, and in particular, one of his greatest successes, Duskendale. In Meereen, Barristan muses that Duskendale had been his finest hour, yet the memory tasted bitter on his tongue, and thinks how, had he not rescued the king, he might have died in Lord Darkland's dungeon, and, quote, Prince Rhaegar would have ascended the Iron Throne, mayhaps to heal the realm. And as much as Barristan Selmy tends to romanticize things, we'd expect that in order to get this level of respect from him, one would have to be diligent, honest, and devoted to duty. A man possessed of these qualities seems unlikely to have run away from his responsibilities. We should acknowledge the idea that it was Rhaegar's devotion to a prophecy that led him to elope with or kidnap Lyanna, and Danny's vision implies that his convictions about the fulfillment of that prophecy may have been evolving. But at the same time, it remains tough to square such a rash action with other elements of Rhaegar's character. As for Lyanna, it would be much easier to imagine her being impulsive. In fact, that's exactly what's implied by Ned's wolf's blood comment. But she was also intelligent and a daughter of Winterfell. As such, she would know that the future following such a precipitate action would be very bleak for her, abandoning the betrothal her father had made for her, running off with a married man, and above all, risking her life to do so, really aren't things that feel in character for her upon reflection. In fact, it's a lot easier to imagine Lyanna, with the wisdom about the way men act around women implied by her observation that Robert would never keep to one bed, laughing at such a proposal that could bring her nothing but dishonor. Which brings us to option two, that their departure was indeed a kidnapping, either premeditated or an event of chance. Robert Baratheon believes this is the case and references Rhaegar's rape of Lyanna several times. The World of Ice and Fire, initially written for Robert by Maester Yandel, characterizes it as a kidnapping and a crime. And apparently, Ned has allowed his children to believe Robert's version of events, as we get Bran telling Asha in A Game of Thrones, Robert was betrothed to marry her, but Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her. Robert fought a war to win her back. He killed Rhaegar on the trident with his hammer, but Lyanna died and he never got her back at all. Interestingly, in these versions, no one ever seems to specify how Lyanna died, a curious omission that we'll get back to later. 
And as a point of security, Ned allowing his children to believe the king's version of events, which became the official story, makes perfect sense if there was some secret, some truth being obscured, or even a version that might not square with Robert's ideas, we'd hardly expect Ned to endanger his children by sharing that information with them. So the point is that contemporary accounts or memories from the people who were living at the time don't confirm kidnapping as the answer. Over and over, Lyanna's agency is implied, Rhaegar's choice is mentioned, and above all, there's an element of romance that simply shouldn't be present in a case of kidnap and rape. And while we're on the subject, let's check in with what George R.R. Martin replied to a fan who queried him about this very thing way back in 1999. Rhaegar and Lyanna, well, that's a revelation that we'll need to wait for later volumes. But if you're uncertain about it, I'm glad. One thing I wanted to do was suggest the uncertainty of truth. I mean, think about it. In our own world, we don't even know what happened between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, or between Bill Clinton and Paula Jones, for that matter. The truth of Rhaegar and Lyanna may be similarly elusive for a time. So, although we're promised an answer one day... We're meant to be on shore today. But that doesn't mean the author hasn't laid out plenty of hints. In fact, he'd absolutely have to be doing just that if he's building towards a reveal of some secret that's important to the narrative. Earlier, we mentioned the song Thomas Seven sings to Arya about the maiden of the tree. The fact that it's directed at Arya, who's noted to be so like her aunt in looks and temperament, feels significant. And the strong element of romance with the man and the woman pledging to be each other's love feels like it's there for a purpose. But since we've already discussed how elopement feels out of character for both Lyanna and Rhaegar, and since romance is entirely out of place in a kidnapping scenario, how do we square this element, also present in memories of Barristan Selmy and Kevin Lannister, and in the stories Daenerys has heard about her brother, with the events that took place? This is where the something in between comes in, because we've proposed that in the wake of the tourney at Harrenhal, Ares discovered the true identity of the mystery knight at the tourney. In A Feast for Crows, Ariohota tells Ariad Martell, someone told, someone always tells. And so if we assume for a moment that Ares discovered from Varys' whispering in his ear or from someone who had been present at the tourney, that the mystery knight was the stark girl that his son had crowned as queen of love and beauty, which had so inflamed his suspicions about Rhaegar's plotting, what would he do? Isn't it possible that he might want to bring her to face his justice? And recalling that Ares' justice now meant fire, what do we think Rhaegar would do if he had word from King's Landing that his father intended to seize the daughter of Lord Rickard Stark? whose identity and presumed guilt may have been revealed to Ares in no small part due to his own actions. Well, we think that there's a possible scenario where Rhaegar set out with his six companions to rescue Lyanna, that he may have even been racing against a similar group riding from King's Landing with orders from his father to seize her. A race against time might explain why Lyanna's brother Brandon, apparently en route to River Run for his own wedding, heard a certain version of events and reacted in his own entirely unexpected, though not uncharacteristic way. But where was Lyanna, and who was with Rhaegar? What did this event look like to the people who witnessed it? 
We've proposed that Liana was at the inn at the crossroads, possibly waiting to meet her brother, who may have been traveling south on the King's Road from Winterfell before heading west on the River Road to River Run from the crossroads. And for more specifics, we refer you to our episode all about the crossroads. In brief, fans suggest Liana may have been staying in the environs, perhaps at Harrenhal with the Wents. The return of winter would have made travel more difficult, so a prolonged stay in the Riverlands perhaps makes the most sense. Rhaegar was accompanied by six of his closest companions, and we can be fairly certain that three of those were his king's guard who would soon accompany him to the Red Mountains of Dorne, Lord Commander Gerald Hightower, Sir Oswell Went, and Sir Arthur Dane. For the others, we've suggested Miles Mooton, Richard Lonmouth, and perhaps John Connington. It's the confirmed presence of three men, besides the known characters who end up in Dorne, that actually supports the idea that there was a race to reach Leanna before someone else did. If Ares sent soldiers to seize Leanna and Rhaegar rescued her, perhaps after an armed altercation, it makes sense that he might send some of his companions to follow his father's men back to the capital, perhaps with messages or explanations. And so if there were witnesses to the event as there would have been if it took place at the inn, they may have seen something like this. A female guest of the inn is approached by two groups of armed men, one of which takes her and gallops away south, after which half of that first group that had been left behind merges with the other group and also heads south. When Brandon Stark arrived on the scene, confusion may have led to him being told one thing. With sword bared, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen had taken his sister and headed south. A pursuit would have revealed a large group of armed men ahead of him on the road, which eventually would have led him to King's Landing and his famous demand that Rhaegar come out of the Red Keep and die. In the meantime, and following Brandon Stark's arrest, those three unidentified companions of Rhaegar's could have been sending messages, primarily to Lord Rickard, revealing the truth and letting him know that his daughter was safe. It was now his son and heir he needed to be concerned with. If word spread further, this scenario also explains Hoster Tully's characterization of Brandon as a gallant fool and Ned's sad memory that the wolf blood led both of his siblings to early graves. When Rhaegar arrived at his destination, his own father may have been calling for his head, or at least his disinheritance, a rumor that had been swirling in the capital for some time as it was, Keeping a low profile along with the king's guard who had accompanied him and were now likely to be the focus of his father's paranoia and rage may have made the most sense in the moment. And by the time word reached them from King's Landing, as it clearly did, and again we'd point to Mooton, Lonmouth, or Connington as the sources of his information, that Ares had not only arrested Brandon Stark and his companions, but also summoned their fathers to court to answer for them. It may have been too late. The play to keep Lyanna Stark safe ended, tragically, with the deaths of her father and brother, a result of a simple fact that Peter Baelish would share with Sansa Stark in A Feast for Crows. Even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you've planned for them. No one person can control all the pieces on the board, especially when dealing with something as unpredictable as paranoia, as in the case of Ares the Mad King, or impetuousness, as in the case of Brandon Stark, the wild wolf. But what about Lyanna? 
We've suggested that she wasn't a simple pawn, that there was agency on her part. These ideas seem to fit with the picture that is painted of her, but there's a piece of world building, an example of George's story within a story technique that's first mentioned in a John point of view in A Clash of Kings that might shed some further light upon Lyanna's agency. Egret tells John the story of Bale the Bard in order to show how closely bound the Starks are to the Free Folk. You have Bale's blood in you, same as me, she tells him. Bale was a king beyond the wall who ran afoul of the Lord of Winterfell, and to teach that lord a lesson, came up with a plan to infiltrate his castle. Disguised as a bard named Sigaric of Skagos, a name which means deceiver in the old tongue, he walked into Winterfell on a winter's night and played for the lord. So great was his skill that the lord let him name his own reward, All I ask is a flower, the fairest flower that blooms in the gardens of Winterfell, came the reply. And so Lord Stark ordered that the most beautiful winter rose from Winterfell's famous glass garden be plucked and given to the singer. But the next day the singer had vanished, and so too had Lord Stark's daughter. On her pillow lay the blue rose. Because she was the only child of this Lord Stark, and presumably his heir, his men and the Night's Watch searched in vain for months for any sign of Sigaric or his daughter. When Lord Brandon, because of course that was his name, had finally despaired of finding her and it seemed the line of Starks must end at last, the girl reappeared in her own bedchamber with a babe at her breast. It turned out that Bale and the daughter had been in Winterfell the whole time, hiding in the crypts beneath the castle. The girl had loved Bale, the song says, and he had left his son behind with her as payment for what he had taken. The story continues that the babe grew up to be the next Lord Stark and that many years later he chanced to meet his own father in a battle at the Frozen Ford. Bale refused to harm his own son, but the son unknowingly killed the father. His mother threw herself from a tower when she saw her former lover's head on her son's spear, and the son himself later fell afoul of the Boltons and became a cloak for one of their lords. So this story has very many points that could be unpacked and related to the main narrative. Its placement in A Clash of Kings is meant to provide readers with a hint that Bran, Rickon, Hodor, and Asha were hiding in the crypts following their escape from Theon. There are other minor points of interest as well, but the main thrust of the story is to provide a thematic connection between a blue rose and a kidnapping that wasn't a kidnapping. Lyanna Stark is heavily connected with blue roses, as we'll see, and in this story, the rose itself stands in for what Bale left behind, his son, who would grow up to be the Stark of Winterfell. Our next segment will take us far to the south of Winterfell, to an abandoned watchtower in Dorne, where Lyanna spent the final months of her life, And we'll be looking at Blue Roses very closely in the upcoming segments as well. They waited before the round tower, the red mountains of Dorne at their backs, their white cloaks blowing in the wind. We know very little about the tower to which Rhaegar Targaryen carried Lyanna Stark. It's referenced only in Eddard Nine in A Game of Thrones. In his dream, he recalls finding Arthur Dane, Oswell Went, and Gerald Hightower, quote, before a round tower, the Red Mountains of Dorne at their backs. In the same chapter, he recalls that one of his companions, Jory Cassell's father Martin, 
was buried in a cairn there. Ned had pulled the tower down afterward and used its bloody stones to build eight cairns upon the ridge. It was said that Rhaegar had named that place the Tower of Joy, but for Ned, it was a bitter memory. So according to the official World of Ice and Fire app, the tower is located at the beginning of the Prince's Pass, north of House Manwoody's seat at Kingsgrave. We don't know who owns it, and as its abandoned state is noted, it's possible neither do the characters in the story, although since Targaryens are known to have fought the Dornish there in Prince's Pass in the past, both during Aegon's conquest and Daron the First conquest of Dorne, it's possible it fell into royal hands at some point, though it's equally possible the Martells claim ownership. Since the Prince's Pass would be the main land route to Starfall, it's also possible it was simply a location known to Arthur Dane that was remote enough to be a safe haven, but still close enough to a few settlements that supplies could be found. As a mountain watchtower, it would also have been easily defensible against enemies from the north. We also know little about what passed there during the year 282, or if it was even the first place the group fled to. We know for a certainty it was the last, and would become the final resting place of the three Kingsguard who remained with Lyanna, as well as five of Ned's companions. Ned recalls that Rhaegar had named it the Tower of Joy, so we can surmise that he spent some time there before he ultimately returned to King's Landing to raise an army to meet the threat of Robert's Rebellion. Jamie tells Brienne in A Storm of Swords, Ares had finally realized that Robert was no mere outlaw lord to be crushed at whim, but the greatest threat House Targaryen had faced since Daemon Blackfire. The king reminded Lewin Martell gracelessly that he held Elia and sent him to take command of the 10,000 Dornishmen coming up the king's road. John Darry and Barristan Selmy rode to Stony Sept to rally what they could of Griffin's men, and Prince Rhaegar returned from the south and persuaded his father to swallow his pride and summon my father. So, points of interest, the Martells had sent an army in support of Elia, and that army was marching up the Boneway. Prince Lewin Martell was given command, and Elia was noted to be in the capital at the time that Rhaegar returned from the south. There's still no hint that the Martells were abandoning their support of House Targaryen, whose heir presumptive was now Ilya's son, and presumably at that point any threat offered to her by Ares would have been quickly countered by her uncle and her husband. That Rhaegar specifically commended the safety of Ilya and his children to Jaime Lannister, the lone Kingsguard left in the capital when the royal army at last marched north to face the Stark Baratheon army in the Riverlands, is also made clear. So we have to do a lot of theorizing and make a few assumptions to bridge the gap between the crossroads in early 282 to the Tower in Dorne in 283. Ned's dream, as we'll see, contains a very strong indication that his sister died after giving birth to a child. As we've said, his memories also indicate that Rhaegar knew some joy at the place and that his sister extracted some solemn promises from him as she lay dying. So what did happen in that year gap? If we're correct about the rescue, and honestly, even if we're not, we still have to answer where romance entered the story. There's already been some element of it introduced in the Night of the Laughing Tree story and Lyanna being named Queen of Love and Beauty, but that's mainly inferred in hindsight. By all appearances, Rhaegar's relationship with his wife and his in-laws changed very little during the time between Harrenhal and his death his father's paranoia notwithstanding. 
But there's a little matter of the prophecy that seems to have motivated some of the prince's decision-making and his statement to Elia following Aegon's birth, he is the prince that was promised and his is the song of ice and fire. The phrase prince that was promised is used several times in the books. Melisandre thinks it's Stannis and Maester Aemon is clearly aware of the prophecy and indicates he had corresponded with Rhaegar about it and that at one time they had both thought it was Rhaegar himself until Rhaegar's thinking evolved to it being his son. And then in A Dance with Dragons, Barristan tells Daenerys why her parents were wed to each other. Your grandsire commanded it. A woodswitch had told him that the prince that was promised would be born of their line. So clearly this prophecy is far-ranging and important to the destiny of House Targaryen, but there's a second part of it implied by Rhaegar's statement to Ilya and Danny's vision. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. This phrase, the title of the series, is only mentioned that one time in the books. But in the world of ice and fire, there's an important bit of history that might bridge the gap between the prophecy and Rhaegar and Lyanna. During the Dance of the Dragons, Prince Jaceris Valerion flew to Winterfell on his dragon, Vermax, to forge an alliance between his mother and Lord Cregan Stark. Because he himself was already betrothed from a very early age to his cousin, Bela Targaryen, he was unable to offer a marriage alliance for his own part, but the eventual agreement that he would wed his firstborn daughter to Lord Stark's heir, Rickon, became known to history as the Pact of Ice and Fire. That marriage never came to pass, since Jaceris would die in the dance not long after, and Rickon Stark ultimately married Jane Manderley, though he continued the Stark alliance with House Targaryen, going with the young dragon into Dorne and dying outside the walls of Sunspear. It's likely Rhaegar was aware of this chapter from his own family's history, and entirely possible that when fate brought him together with Lyanna Stark, he realized the importance of that phrase and understood at last that it meant a union of Stark and Targaryen. Whether he realized this on Dragonstone following Aegon's birth and possibly discussed it with Elia, or only later after he had spirited Lyanna to Dorne, we cannot say, but we do think it's likely that he also remembered another important piece of Targaryen lore that we first heard about in the history book Fire and Blood. The doctrine of exceptionalism is a simple tenet that was incorporated into the faith of the Seven in the early years of the reign of King Jaehaerys I. When Jaehaerys wed his sister Alysanne, he wished to prevent a repeat of the uproar with the faith that had surrounded the polygamous marriages of his uncle Magor, which had been further inflamed by the incestuous marriage of his elder siblings Aegon and Rhaena. So the doctrine of exceptionalism was born, and it stated this. The faith of the seven had been born in the hills of Andalos of old and had crossed the narrow sea with the Andals. The laws of the seven, as laid down in sacred text and taught by the Septas and Septons in obedience to the father of the faithful, decreed that brother might not lie with sister, nor father with daughter, nor mother with son, that the fruits of such unions were abominations, loathsome in the eyes of the gods. But the Targaryens were different. Their roots were not in Andalos, but in Valyria of old, where different laws and traditions held sway. A man had only to look at them to know that they were not like other men. Their eyes, their hair, their very bearing all proclaimed their differences, and 
they flew dragons. They alone of all the men in the world had been given the power to tame those fearsome beasts once the doom had come to Valyria. Essentially, Jaehaerys was enshrining the idea that Targaryens were godlike and thus above the laws of men into the faith in much the same way the concept of divine right, the idea that certain men derived their authority directly from God, had been used by medieval kings in real-world Europe. Though Targaryen incest had become less common, Rhaegar himself was the product of two generations of brother-sister marriages, and it's highly likely he would have seen the value of this doctrine as a way of enabling him to take a second wife when the prophecy that he had spent his life studying appeared to require it. Because we do think that there's very clear evidence that the child that Lyanna would bear in that tower was legitimate. The presence of the Kingsguard there when Ned arrived, their stubborn refusal to yield to him, and their lack of concern for Prince Viserys, who would be their new king had Rhaegar left no sons, are clear in this passage. Sir Willem Darius fled to Dragonstone with your queen and Prince Viserys. I thought you might have sailed with him. Sir Willem is a good man and true, said Sir Oswell, but not of the King's Guard, Sir Gerald pointed out. The King's Guard does not flee, then or now, said Sir Arthur. He donned his helm. We swore a vow, explained old Sir Gerald. So, the reference to their vow and the fact that they are Kingsguard seems to us to be as clear a sign as any that, in the minds of these men, their new king was in the tower at their backs. Ned recalls the three in the manner of honorable foes and later tells Bran that Arthur Dane would have killed him but for Holland Reed. But assuming we've answered the question of what passed between Rhaegar and Lyanna, at least on a surface level, there are still the questions of how Ned knew where to find his sister and how we know what he found when he got there. To address the latter question first, Ned thinks of his sister relatively frequently and those thoughts often involve blood, blue roses, and promises. Specifically, he thinks of Lyanna in her bed of blood. In A Feast for Crows, Aaron Greyjoy muses on the differences between the fates of men and women on the Iron Islands, thinking... Women brought forth short-lived children from beds of blood and pain, and women were made to fight their battles in the birthing bed. This is clearly a phrase used to indicate childbirth, and that's a fairly concrete bit of evidence. In the abstract, we have the references, repeated over and over, to blue roses related to Lyanna's blood and death and to the promises she begged from her brother. The blue rose, as we'll discuss more in the next segment, represents the child, just as the blue rose in the Bale the Bard story represented the son Bale left behind, the idea being that Rhaegar gave Lyanna a crown of blue roses at Harrenhal, and he gave her a child at the Tower of Joy. But how did Ned know so precisely where to find his sister? Based on the timeline, it appears he traveled more or less directly to the Prince's Pass from Storm's End after lifting the siege there. We know that he was accompanied by six companions, Howland Reed, Martin Cassell, Theo Wool, Mark Riswell, William Dustin, and Ethan Glover. All were Northmen, bannermen to House Stark, and all had fought beside Ned in the war, but for one. 
Ethan Glover had been Brandon's squire, one of the four who traveled to King's Landing with him when he went to demand Rhaegar deliver his sister or come out and die. Brandon and three of his friends were executed by Ares along with their fathers. Only Ethan Glover survived, and he would spend the better part of a year in the Black Cells, only to be freed after the sack of King's Landing and join up with Ned's army heading south. This is a singularly strange circumstance, since there's no reason noted as to why Glover was spared, but his presence in the capital during those months makes him a possible point of connection between Rhaegar and Ned. Many have theorized that Rhaegar might have sent a message to Lord Rickard after taking Lyanna. This might explain that when Lord Stark arrived in King's Landing, he doesn't seem to have asked after his missing daughter, as we said. Jamie remembers Rickard's death very clearly, and he doesn't say a word about any demand for Lyanna, for instance. Others have pointed out that Lyanna herself may have sent some message to her family. But if word had reached Ned sooner, why didn't he seek her out or send someone else to do so? Howland Reed might have served in that role, for instance. So we think it's more likely that Ned only learned of her specific location relatively late, not long before he reached her. And the message he received must have been one that indicated caution and secrecy, for he doesn't seem to have told Robert, and instead traveled with only a select group of close friends. So we come back to Ethan Glover, who was in the Red Keep during the time Rhaegar came back to the capital to raise an army. If Rhaegar realized that a close friend of the Starks was being held in the Black Cells, he might have visited him and given him a message for Ned before he left for the Trident. This would be in the manner of insurance, so that someone who could deliver a message to Ned Stark alone would be in place in the event of his own defeat or death. Remember that it was Rhaegar's intention to win at the Trident and return to King's Landing to make changes. Assuming those changes were in the manner of a regime change, at that point, the threat to Lyanna and her child from both Ares and Robert would have been greatly reduced. Other ideas range from Varys to Ashardane being the message bearers, but we like the idea of it being the lone Northman in the capital, someone whom Rhaegar could be reasonably sure would speak to Ned first rather than Robert. And so the Seven traveled to the Red Mountains and encountered the three Kingsguard and Lyanna in her bed of blood. Ned has several poignant memories of his sister's death, almost all intertwined with promises and roses, none more so than the first. The fever had taken her strength, and her voice had been faint as a whisper, but when he gave her his word, the fear had gone out of his sister's eyes. Ned remembered the way she had smiled then, how tightly her fingers had clutched his as she gave up her hold on life, the rose petals spilling from her palm, dead and black. Lyanna was frightened as she lay dying from what seems to have been puerperal, or childbed, fever. She was also only 16, lovely, and beloved by her older brother. Her death, after the long war fought nominally in her name, must have devastated him. But for Lyanna's part, her brother's promise had the power to soothe her in her final moments, and I want to point out that her fear seems to have been for her child rather than for herself. It's worth noting that many fans find the reference to the roses being black in that memory to be a symbolic nod to John and his future. 
Black was always my color, he would say to his brother Rob when they parted, John going north to take the black, and of course, once there, he would end up dead, though of course we're all pretty confident that won't be a permanent state. But what about other people who may have been present? Ned recalls that after his sister died, quote, they had found him still holding her body, silent with grief. The little Cranigman, Howland Reed, had taken her hand from his. Ned could recall none of it. The King's Guard and five of Ned's companions were dead by that point, and so besides Howland, it's highly likely there were other people at the tower, the they from Ned's memory, which makes sense since three knights could hardly have been expected to shoulder the care of a pregnant woman. So a midwife seems likely, not to mention maybe a squire or three and some servants. They might even have had the foresight to find a wet nurse, although we have a possible parallel that suggests another option. When John sends Gillian Mance's son off to Old Town with Sam and Maester Eamon in A Feast for Crows, John mentions the need for a wet nurse for the child who's being left behind. Sam tells him that if one can't be found in the short term, goat's milk might serve until you do. It's better for a babe than cow's milk. So it's possible Ned found himself a goat for the babe until a wet nurse could be found. We know that eventually he did find a wet nurse at Starfall, a woman named Wyla, who would serve House Dane in that capacity for many more years. In A Storm of Swords, when Arya meets Edric Dane of Starfall, he tells her that he's John's milk brother. This is a term used to describe children who were nursed by the same woman but aren't related by blood. Wyla, says Edric, was his wet nurse. Wyla, also says Edric, was John's mother. Arya finds this news startling, not in the least because Edric then proceeds to tell Arya that her father, John's father, was in love with his aunt Ashara Dane, whom he met at the Harrenhal tourney. Add to this the fact that Catelyn recalls how John and his wet nurse were already installed at Winterfell when she arrived with Rob after the war was over. Cat believes, having heard it from her maids, that Ashara is John's mother, and this piece of gossip apparently originated from Ned's soldiers, but we shouldn't forget there's also the wet nurse who had lately arrived, most likely from Dorne. Confusingly, this nurse isn't necessarily Wyla, because she seems to have remained in Dorne to be the nurse of the much younger Ned Dane, although it's possible that she returned there after John was weaned. At any rate, following Lyanna's tragic death and the burial of the eight men at the tower, Ned set out for the seat of House Dane at Starfall. With him was Howland Reed, a newborn infant, his sister's body, Lord Dustin's horse, and the ancestral sword of the Dane family, Don. The gossip Cat heard about Ashara related how her husband had returned the fabled sword to the beautiful sister of the man he had killed. Much later, Lady Barbary Dustin, William Dustin's widow, would grouse to Theon Greyjoy that Ned had brought his sister's bones back from the south, but all she got back was her husband's horse. Since the horse in question had been her wedding gift to Lord Dustin, and horses in general were the treasure and lifeblood of her house, House Riswell, this seems like an odd thing to get hung up on. But if we think about that journey through the Prince's Pass, where a cart would be unlikely to be of use, then a spare horse to carry Lyanna's body seems like a good idea, and bringing the most valuable horse of the lot seems kind of like a decision Ned would make. 
So Ned arrived at Starfall with his odd little entourage, and whatever young Ned Dane's later confusion would be, fed incidentally by his Aunt Illyria, who isn't old enough to have remembered it personally, it seems pretty clear that there must be people at Starfall who know that Ned Stark arrived out of the mountains with a babe in his arms. Since Ned and Ashara had clearly forged some sort of understanding at Harrenhal, it's possible she might have guessed or been told a version of the truth. And her apparent suicide or disappearance not long after, combined with her possible knowledge of a dark secret, is very convenient in terms of the plot and contributes to numerous fan theories about her still being alive. Whatever else happened at Starfall, we know this. When he returned to Winterfell with his sister's bones, he brought the child with him and named him his son. As Cat remembers, Ned had brought his bastard home with him and called him son for all the North to see. Lyanna was buried in the crypts at Winterfell. As Ned would later tell Robert, she wanted to come home to rest beside Brandon and father. Bran would later tell Asha, Lyanna and Brandon are in the tombs beside my grandfather. Not me, another Brandon, my father's brother. They're not supposed to have statues. That's only for the lords and the kings. But my father loved them so much, he had them done. In Ned's dream, Lyanna's statue wears a garland of pale blue roses. And in the next segment, we'll take a deeper look at roses, promises, and the answers that lie in the crypts. I was with her when she died. She wanted to come home. To rest, beside Brandon, father. I bring her flowers when I can. Lion was fond of flowers. Introduced to the crypts of Winterfell and Lyanna's tomb in Ned's first point of view chapter. It's the first thing Robert Baratheon asks to do upon arriving at Winterfell. After spending weeks traveling, the king doesn't ask for refreshment or a place to rest. Over the protests of his wife, he declares that he would pay his respects to Lyanna. This is clearly important. In the crypts, Robert observed Lyanna's statue and questioned her interment in this dark, cold, subterranean vault. Ned replied that this was what she wanted. She was a Stark of Winterfell. This is her place. In the statue, as we said, Lyanna is depicted wearing a crown of blue roses. This must symbolize the crown Rhaegar gave her at Harrenhal, but it also has a double meaning. Blue roses are linked to Lyanna on numerous occasions, and in most cases, blood, promises, and Lyanna's death are also associated. Rhaegar Targaryen is also present, even in absence. He gave her the roses, and his alleged actions brought about Lyanna's death. The fact that this link is first indicated in Ned's very first chapter and continues throughout A Game of Thrones highlights its importance. 
Following his memory explicitly linking blood and roses to his sister, Ned tells Robert, I bring her flowers when I can. Lyanna was fond of flowers. In Ned's dream of the Tower of Joy, the first line, he dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Lyanna in her bed of blood. And the last, a storm of rose petals blew across a blood-streaked sky as blue as the eyes of death, worked together to connect Lyanna, blue roses, and blood. Ned has another dream, the day King Robert returns from the Kingswood with his fatal wound. He's in the crypts of Winterfell and sees Lyanna's statue. Promise me, Ned, Lyanna's statue whispered. She wore a garland of pale blue roses, and her eyes wept blood. And then, in the black cells, he has a final dream. Ned remembered the moment when all the smiles died, when Prince Rhaegar Targaryen urged his horse past his own wife, the Dornish princess Elia Martell, to lay the Queen of Beauty's laurel in Lyanna's lap. He could see it still, a crown of winter roses, blue as frost. Ned Stark reached out his hand to grasp the flowery crown, but beneath the pale blue petals the thorns lay hidden. He felt them clawing at his skin, sharp and cruel, saw the slow trickle of blood run down his fingers, and woke, trembling in the dark. Promise me, Ned, his sister had whispered from her bed of blood. She had loved the scent of winter roses. Every mention of blue roses in Ned's point-of-view chapters links to Lyanna and also involves promises, blood, or both. A final example of the connection between Lyanna and Blue Roses is in Theon Greyjoy's Dream of the Dead in A Clash of Kings, when he sees a slim, sad girl who wore a crown of pale blue roses and a white gown spattered with gore, who could only be Lyanna. As Ned Stark's ward, it's likely Theon would know only the official story of Lyanna's death, that Rhaegar Targaryen carried her away and left her to die in captivity, although it's equally likely Theon has been in the crypts. And so in Theon's dream, as in Ned's thoughts and dreams, there's the connection made to Blue Roses. Chronologically speaking, of course, the association begins with Rhaegar Targaryen giving her Blue Roses, which seem to symbolize the union between Rhaegar and Lyanna. And as we said, assuming that John is the product of that union, the Blue Rose can be applied as a metaphor for John himself, something Rhaegar has given her as he gave her the original crown. And in support of the blue rose representing John, we see one in Danny's vision in the House of the Undying. A blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice. It's Jorah Mormont who later clarifies that this flower was in fact a blue rose, and that particular blue rose fits Jon Snow very well, with his location in story at the Wall of Ice that forms the northern border of Westeros. The connection of blue roses with blood is what indicates that Lyanna's death is related to the child as represented by the roses. The promises are assumed to be the ones Ned made to her to protect her son as she lay dying in the tower. Promise me is repeated so many times that John, as Lyanna and Rhaegar's son, can be viewed literally as a prince that was promised. Whether this turns out to be true in the prophetic or abstract sense remains to be seen, but from a purely concrete view, it's pretty clear that John is a hidden prince heavily associated with promises. While Ned has frequent dreams and memories of his sister, 
John has a recurring dream of the Winterfell crypts. He tells Sam in A Game of Thrones, I find myself in front of the door to the crypts. It's black inside and I can see the steps spiraling down. Somehow I know I have to go down there, but I don't want to. I'm afraid of what might be waiting for me. The old kings of winter are down there, sitting on their thrones with stone wolves at their feet and iron swords across their laps. But it's not them I'm afraid of. I scream that I'm not a Stark, that this isn't my place, but it's no good. I have to go anyway. So I start down, feeling the walls as I descend, with no torch to light the way. It gets darker and darker until I want to scream. This dream indicates that there's something waiting for John, some revelation that he cannot avoid in the crypts, though it frightens him, and on some level, he understands that it will change his concept of who he is. But John also dreams about his mother. In A Game of Thrones, it says, He knew nothing of his mother. Eddard Stark would not talk of her. Yet he dreamed of her at times, so often that he could almost see her face. In his dreams, she was beautiful and highborn, and her eyes were kind. So on a very deep level, it seems that John is being compelled to seek an answer to a question that goes to the very heart of his identity. Throughout his life, he's been made to feel shame about his status as a bastard. Rumors about who his mother might have been are spread far and wide. Was she a Sharadane, a wet nurse named Wyla, or a fisherman's daughter from the Vale? At the wall, Toad taunts him that his mother was, quote, some whore, and some sense of dread in John's mind concurs that his mother was, quote, a whore or an adulteress, something dark and dishonorable, or else why was Lord Eddard too ashamed to speak of her? In a moment of despair, John thinks how even his own mother had not had a place for him, but still he resolves that he wants to know the truth. Faced with the prospect of seeing Ned again, he thinks, I'll ask him about my mother. I'm a man now. It's past time, he told me. Even if she was a whore, I don't care. I want to know. There's something beautiful about the simplicity of the fact that while John's dreams, on the one hand, ask a question, they also offer an answer of sorts. Though the concrete reveal may come to him in some other way, in the most symbolic of ways, his dreams are giving him the answer he desires. It has been beneath his feet all along, in the crypts of Winterfell, wearing a crown of winter roses that symbolizes the union of ice and fire, of which he is the living embodiment. Thanks so much for joining us for this look at Lyanna Stark, one of the hidden storylines that we look forward to learning more about from the books. And now, as usual, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks again to Robert from In Deep Geek, Mikhail Schick from Vassals of Kingsgrave and Hypable, and Scad from Davos Fingers for loaning us their vocal talents. To Lauren, Shakes of Thrones for the gorgeous rendition of Jenny's song, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And thanks, as always, to George R. R. Martin for adding mysteries to his story. And as usual, we'll end today with shout-outs to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. Thanks to all our new patrons, and if you enjoy the podcast, consider becoming a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to 
Amber, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arodo, Marcel, Dean, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den, Blythe Spirit, Ashley, Rachel, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Amber, Catherine, Tree Girl, Gary, Chris, Tim, Alex, Convenience or Death, Jessica, David, Quarren Halfhand, Amanda, Melinda, Chris, Alex, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire, AJ, Arion, Greg, Brendan B. Fish, Steve, Zainab, Megan E., Yvonne, Felix, Brian, Matt L., Jose, Michael M., Major Woody, Tanner, Aiden, Dimitri B., Direwolf, Spentrail, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Andres, Mary, Adam, Sam, Clerk Nasty of the North, Eric, Leah, Maddie and Jessica, Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne, and the Wolverine Knight, whose sigil is crushed buckeye nuts on a maze field. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or by email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.